In the 1920s, Ira Yates was like most West Texas farmers and ranchers. He had a lot of land, about 20,000 acres, but he had even more debt. Yates was a sheep farmer, and he needed the land, all 20,000 acres of it, for grazing. He and his wife, though, were really struggling to feed their family. In fact, they ended up on government subsidy and were in danger of losing the ranch. Then one day, Ira decided that he would contact an oil company just to see if by chance there might be oil that could be found on his land. At that time, no oil had been located or found west of the Pecos River, where his ranch was located. But one company agreed, said they would come out and just see if by chance there was oil there. On the fourth attempt, they found oil. On October 27, 1926, Yates was living in poverty. But on October 28, 1926, Yates was a millionaire. By 1929, the whales found on his land were producing $133,000 in oil a day. By today's standards, that was $1.7 million a day in oil. The difference happened when Yates tapped into the resources that he had. As Paul continues in his letter to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 3, he is going to expound upon the riches that we have in Christ. Ladies, what folly it would have been for Yates and his family to continue to live in poverty when they had untold riches just waiting there at their disposal. But what folly it is when we keep on living in spiritual poverty instead of living out of the riches we have from the high king of heaven. So, like Ira Yates, let's drill down in this passage this morning. And as we do, we are going to discover the value of the riches we have in Christ. First, we see the value of suffering. Now, I know that's a tough way to begin, and I kind of felt the air suck out of the room. But just hang, with, hang in there with me for just a minute. Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now when you were studying that passage this week, if you were a little confused by that, you're in good company. I have a good feeling that the Colossians were a little confused when they were first reading that as a part of his letter to them. I can imagine them wondering, what do you mean you rejoice in sufferings, Paul? I mean, what are you, some kind of a sadist? And what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? 
Didn't Jesus say on the cross, it is finished? Hasn't Jesus already done everything that is necessary for our salvation? So let's start at the end of verse 24 and clear up that part first. To begin with, let's look at what filling up what is lacking does not mean. It does not mean, ladies, that Christ came up short in atoning for our sin. At Calvary, Jesus made a full and complete payment for our sin. We can't add anything at all to that because nothing needs to be added. Any suffering that Paul or we might experience in no way adds any merit to Christ's sacrificial death for our sin. As I was grappling with this verse, I read an illustration that I think might help us peel back what Paul was meaning here. Imagine a great scientist who spent his life and ruined his health trying to find a cure for a disease. He discovers the cure, but dies in the process. His death means nothing, and the discovery remains useless unless it's taken out of the laboratory to the people who need the cure for the disease. Now, the doctors who take it to others may have to labor hard. They may have to risk their own lives to do so. But they are not in any way adding to the scientist's work. But it could be saying, it could be true, it could be said that they are completing the sufferings of the scientist by taking his discovery to the far corners of the world. Christ gave himself as a love offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. His offering is full and lacks absolutely nothing except one thing, a personal presentation of Christ from us to those who do not know him. For us to take the good news of the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. When we do that, when we share Jesus, we are, in fact, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by finishing what his afflictions were, in fact, designed for. A personal presentation of Christ to a world who is lost and does not know him unless we tell them. And often, many times, that happens through suffering. Paul understood and wants us to understand that there will be a struggle against the powers of darkness as we share Jesus and live our lives in a way that points to him. But let's be honest, in America, we know little about what it actually means to suffer for the sake of Christ. But I think we can find an application here for us this morning. 
When people insult us, when they criticize us, when they misunderstand us, when they lie about us, when they spread gossip about us, Paul makes it clear that our go-to response is to be joy. And just to be clear, it is not if those things happen to us, it is when those things happen to us because they will happen. And when they do, we have to hang on to our joy. That is what Paul means by rejoice in suffering. In the last couple of decades, there have been a lot of new developments in brain science. One of the things that scientists and psychologists have learned is about the importance of joy in our lives. Last week, Donna mentioned the book, The Other Half of Church. Here's what the authors of that book say about joy. God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. As we go throughout the day, our brains are scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. To our brains, joy means someone is glad to be with me. It's that face that lights up when someone sees us. And when that happens, it only takes 40 milliseconds for our brains to respond with a release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine then stimulates our brain's reward center and we feel a burst of pleasure. And that happens every time we see someone who is happy to see us. But what happens when our joy tanks are empty? It's like trying to run a marathon without having eaten for a month. We don't have the energy, the strength that we need to run the race. That is one of the reasons why biblical community, believers coming together in person, is so important. Joy does not exist outside of relationship. And joy is primarily transmitted through the face, in particular, through the eyes. I hope that every one of you has experienced and have communicated an exchange of joy this morning. That's one of the things I love about Tuesday morning is watching you come in and you see each other and your faces light up. This morning, I stood up on the, the second floor and just watched y'all. Oh, the joyful noises that were going on down in the West Lobby. I actually found myself being drawn into one of the groups because there was so much, it wasn't even laughter. It was simply joy that was coming out of one of the rooms this morning. What a blessing it is. Ladies, that's why biblical community is so important because without each other, those things don't happen, do they? Our joy is replenished by each other and it is also refilled when we're in the presence of God. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Presence there can also be translated face. In your face is fullness of joy. Joy is a response to our relationship with God. And it happens every time we spend time with him. Every time we are face to face with him, as we sense 
how happy he is to see us and are aware that he is present with us. Here's something interesting that's been discovered about joy. Joy is not just an emotion. Joy is a supra-emotion because it can go to the top of and connect with the other six emotions that are considered negative emotions, emotions that would cause us to suffer. Sadness, anxiety, despair, shame, anger, and disgust. Joy does not replace those negative emotions when we're suffering, but it regulates them and helps us to endure. Jesus refused to relinquish joy when he was on the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Joy will not remove our pain, but it will sustain us and give us the strength that we need to endure. When a child of God, when a daughter of the king goes through suffering, we draw the presence of God. Psalm 23 tells us, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Isaiah 43, 2 reminds us that God is present with us in absolutely every circumstance. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched nor will the flames burn you. Tim Keller writes, the promise is not that God will remove us from the experience of suffering. No, the promise is that God will be with us, walking beside us in it. God will never leave you. As we learn to experience the joy of the Lord in the valley, in the fire, in the flood, we will discover the intrinsic value of suffering in our lives. Elizabeth Elliot said this, out of the deepest waters and hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. And as a lost world looks on, the message of the difference that Jesus makes in a life will echo loud and strong. Paul then moves on to the next measure of our riches in Christ, the value of serving. Verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister or servant according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul tells us here that his job description was a servant of the gospel and a servant of the church. 
God had called him to serve. Serving was a part of God's plan for Paul's life. And what is true for Paul is also true for you. The word stewardship there in verse 25 means individual assignment, something given specifically to you. God doesn't just have a global mission for his church. He has an individual assignment for each one of you. He has a purpose for you, something that if you don't do it, it will not get done. It is your assignment. The word stewardship also indicates that your assignment is something given to you, not for yourself, but for the sake of someone else. God has uniquely gifted you and given you an individual assignment to shine as a light in the world and reach the world with the gospel. How are you fulfilling the assignment that God has given you? Or maybe I should ask, are you fulfilling the assignment that God has given you. Paul talks about the value of suffering, the value of serving, and then he talks about the value of hope. Verse 26 and 27. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Twice in these two verses, Paul uses the word mystery. Now, he is not speaking about mystery in the sense of something that's strange and unusual. This is not a Sherlock Holmes type of mystery to be solved. The word mystery here refers to something that has been hidden, something that has been kept secret up until this point, but now it has been revealed in Christ, not, to the Jew, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And this mystery is something that is of eternal value. And he summarizes the treasure in just seven words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is one of the most beautiful phrases in scripture. And it stops us in our tracks and begs us to take a deeper look. To really grasp what Paul means by these seven words, we need to look at the story of God's presence. Now, we could spend weeks here, but we're just going to do a flyover this morning so that we can get a sense of what Paul's talking about in those words. From the beginning, from the very beginning, it was God's holy intention to dwell among his people. When God made man, Genesis 2, 7 tells us that he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being. The very essence 
and presence of God were infused in Adam unlike any other thing that God created. Man was created from the presence of God in the presence of God and he breathed the presence of God. Do you remember what Eden was like? God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Eden was their home. But more importantly, it was God's sanctuary. It was the epicenter of his relational presence in creation. But then Adam and Eve sinned. And of all the things that they lost when God banished them from the garden... The deepest loss was man's experience, his personal experience of the presence of God. The presence of God they once freely knew was no longer free. And that was not God's holy intention. So in grace, God stepped in to pay the price. The creator God became the covenant redeemer. In Genesis 12, God selected Abraham and called him into a covenant relationship. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation, blessing him with offspring and land. And he told Abraham that through him, all nations would be blessed. God's plan to create a people for his presence would now be fulfilled through the lineage of Abraham. Now let's fast forward through the rest of Genesis. On over to Exodus chapter 19. This is when God's presence appeared to all the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai right after they left Egypt. In Exodus 19, 6, the Lord told Moses that if they would keep his covenant, they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Underline the words kingdom of priests. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then in 1913, God told Moses that the people were to come up to the mountain. Now, let's see What happens next? Verse 16. So it came about on the third day that it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the mountain quaked violently. This, ladies, was how God introduced himself to the Israelites. And apparently the thunder, the lightning and the shaking mountain were way too much for them because in Exodus 20, 19, we see that they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God God speak to us or we will surely 
die. Remember that God has just rescued them from the Egyptians with plagues, raging waters, and pillars of fire. But now, now they are terrified of him. So instead of drawing close to God, as he had told them to do, look in verse 21 and see what happens. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Moses here was mediating for the people as their priest. But that was not God's holy intention. Remember what he said in Exodus 19, 6? He wanted the entire people to be a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests. So since the people would not come to God, God would have to come to them. So he designed the tabernacle. And he had Moses build it according to his specifications. When it was finished, Exodus 40, 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud was settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The presence of the Lord now had a resting place among the people in a tangible way. But that was not God's holy intention because his presence here was limited to a place. Now let's look at 1 Kings 8. Solomon had just finished building the temple and the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant where the Lord's presence dwelled into the most holy place. Verses 10 and 11. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Get this picture. The priests take the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place. They place it there, and then they turn around to leave. But as they are leaving, there is such a heavy concentration of God's presence that they are falling over just trying to get out of there. What a powerful experience. But again, that was not God's holy intention. The presence of God was confined to one physical location, the temple in Jerusalem. It was a spectacular dwelling place, but it was still missing something, an entire kingdom of priests. In every one of these Old Testament passages, we see that when God shows up, when he shows up in his holy place, there is a physical manifestation of his presence. He leaves no doubt that Jehovah God is in the house. 
Now let's turn over and look at the New Testament. At the very beginning of the New Testament, in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, we read the words that the angel spoke to Joseph when he learned that Mary was pregnant. The angel said this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. And for the next three decades, God was physically present in the person of Jesus Christ. As John wrote in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. But it was not God's holy intention for Jesus to physically remain on this earth. Jesus said in John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that is exactly what happens. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, 120 Christ followers are gathered up in the upper room. And Acts 2.2 tells us this. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts 2, we see that the presence of God inhabits his people. And this is what Paul means when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. For everyone who believes, Christ has taken up residence in us, the firstborn over all creation, the one who died for you and for me is present in us through his indwelling spirit. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't just say mine. He says home. And he leaves no doubt that he is in the house. And that, ladies, that was always his holy intention. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ living in you is your hope. He is our hope. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He continues on and explains another one of the riches we have in Christ, the value of transformation. Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily 
in me. When Paul met Christ, everything in his life changed. He went from being an enemy of Christ to an ambassador for him. For the rest of his life, Paul's day-to-day existence orbited around one thing, Jesus. His letters are thick with the aroma of Christ, not just so we can gather intellectual information about him, but for us to be able to experience spiritual transformation, for us to become complete or mature, as Paul says in verse 28. Dallas Willard says that spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. Another way to say that is as we mature spiritually, we are becoming who Jesus would be if he were us. Maturity is the process of growth. As you see on this line segment, immaturity is at one end. Maturity is at the other. And the process is what we call transformation. That's the process of our spiritual growth. The word transformation is an old French word from the 14th century that means change the form of. It is that visual picture of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You may remember this from elementary science. Some insects experience what is called incomplete metamorphosis. Insects like crickets, and grasshoppers. When baby grasshoppers are born, they look like small adults, but without the wings. Butterflies, on the other hand, go through what is called complete metamorphosis. A baby butterfly is laid as an egg. Next, it becomes a caterpillar, then a pupa, cocoon, And then finally, it becomes a butterfly. Now, the DNA of the butterfly is there in the egg. It's there in the caterpillar. It's there in the cocoon. But it is not until it is fully transformed that the beautiful butterfly emerges. In verse 27, Paul has just told us, that Christ, the hope of glory, lives in us. When we receive Christ, when we are born again, his identity is planted in us. And the process of transformation begins. The qualities of Christ have been born in us through the Holy Spirit. Just like the caterpillar has the DNA of a butterfly, we have the DNA of Christ. All the qualities of Christ are present within us. But you just can't tape wings on a caterpillar and expect it to fly. We have everything we need within us to become like Christ. But we have to go through the process of becoming. The process where the be like Jesus qualities within us come to life, and we learn to be like him. And that is what we call 
transformation. One of the ways transformation takes place in our lives is through the last value we see in this passage, the value of community. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God created us for community. We are wired for relationships. Do you remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Hanks plays a man called Chuck, by the name of Chuck Nolan, a workaholic executive for FedEx who's in a plane crash and he survives. He washes up on a remote island with some of the cargo and he then begins a four-year ordeal to make his way back home. It doesn't take him long at all to realize that he is desperate for companionship. So he creates a friend from a piece of cargo. Enter Hank's co-star, Wilson, the volleyball. <laughs> Chuck paints a face on the volleyball and Wilson becomes his friend and close confidant. Thanks to the presence of Wilson, Chuck is no longer alone. We need community, ladies. We were created by God for community. And spiritual growth and transformation will not happen in isolation. Maturity happens in relationship, in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Notice that in verse 2, Paul uses the plural pronoun they. He is talking about their collective maturity that happens as they grow in unity and love and discover together the riches of wisdom and knowledge that await us in Christ. If you're struggling in your walk with Christ, one reason might be because you are trying to walk alone when you were created to walk in community. The authors of the book, Everyday Church, explain it is hard for us to grasp the significance of this community identity because we live in a radically individualistic culture. We bring this worldview with us into the church so that it shapes our understanding of the gospel. So we have a loose connection with Christians on Sunday, but then largely we go back to living our everyday lives on our own. No wonder we struggle to thrive. Our faith is animated on Sunday mornings as we sing God's praise and hear his word. But it limps along during the week when we live apart from the body of Christ. Ladies, the body of Christ is not meant to be a crowd of individuals who just gather together on Sunday mornings. It is meant to be a community of believers belonging to one another, loving one another, and growing together in the likeness of Christ. In community, we learn to rejoice in sufferings. We practice serving. 
We remind each other of the hope that we have. We experience transformation and we discover that in Christ, we are rich. We have everything that we need. Ladies, for years, Ira Yates lived in poverty, unaware of the amazing riches that were his. Please, please don't make the same mistake.